Father, please open to us your word as Corey teaches us about the new life and the new power you give to us. Give us ears that hear and minds that understand and hearts that respond. The reading today is from the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians, the first chapter, verses 10 through 17. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that you are baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the, Christ, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Good morning, church. Good to see you all. My name is Corey Garrett. I'm a member here at the barn, and this is the second our uh, fall series. It's on 1 Corinthians, so uh, if you missed last week, you haven't missed much. You can get caught up. The pilot episode was last week, so, uh, you know, watch that. Am I connected? Okay. So we moved this summer, and we moved close to the Big Y in Simsbury, which is actually already was our favorite uh, grocery store, but now we are like less than a mile from this place. And so uh, Katie was recently sick, uh, doing a lot of cooking, and night we were having something that really needed tomatoes and avocados. I had forgotten to get the tomatoes and avocados, so I just, boom, I ran out and I got the tomatoes and avocados. I was back and, you know, it wasn't like it didn't ruin the, um, the meal. It was so quick. Got me thinking about where we well, we spend most of our time uh, in a remote area in a country in West Africa, and when we first moved there, they didn't have even like fruit, like apples, oranges, bananas, you couldn't buy them. It got slowly better over time, and right before the pandemic, uh, we got this new shop. And for the first time in Kaffrine, we could buy cheese. 
and milk and peanut M&Ms. So this was like life-changing for us. So, you know, you're there for 16, 17 years not being able to buy this stuff, and then you can, it's just like, you're living a whole new life. But at the same time, we were so used to this life of relative deprivation, you know, uh, that sometimes we would forget about it and go without some of those things and before we realized, oh man, we actually can just go to this stuff. I think you know where I'm heading with this. Sometimes in the Christian life, we live in old ways, even though we have a new way of life that's available to us, and we really should be living in, right? And that is happening, like, to a crazy extent in, in Corinth. And Paul is writing to the Corinthians to remind them in all of these specific ways, you are in Christ, you have a new life. You don't have to live in this old way anymore. You can live in a new way that has all, this, all these implications for daily life. So in all over First Corinthians, we're going to see again and again and again what the implications of this new life are. And we're seeing just a few here in this passage. So let's look at it and see what, see what the Lord has to say, for us, uh, say to us today. The first way that this new way of living is kind of showing itself in our passage today is that the Corinthians were dividing on opinions. These subjective opinions, I like this rather than that. I'm a big fan of the pumpkin spice variety of Cheerios rather than the regular Cheerios. I like it when Paul preaches it better than Apollos preaches. These non-essential things. And they were letting these things divide them. As John Stott says about this particular problem, the issue here in Corinth is personalities, not principles. Paul says in verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. This mind that he's talking about is the mind of Christ. The judgment that he's talking about is the judgment of Christ. What matters to Jesus? Certainly not whether this person or that person is speaking. The Corinthians, however, were not living in this way. They were preferring... Sorry. Thank you. Should I turn this one off? Okay. This is just the backup. So I get to hold the mic and also have this thing on my head. So I get the best of both worlds here. Okay, let me get back into where I was, uh, where I was here. So what matters to Jesus? The Corinthians are not living in this way. Now, we have to stop and note that the, uh, the leaders that we're talking about here, Paul, Apollos, Peter, etc., they were not behind this. They did not want to be made much of. They were trying to make much of Jesus. They did not want this adulation from these groups. Uh, they were not trying to get this. Um, kind of attention, but it was these super fans who were insisting on it. They wanted to show their kind of good taste and what um, a discerning palate they had as far as public speakers go by emphasizing the style over the substance and the voice over the message. The Corinthians are letting these preferences divide them, quarreling over their subjective opinions. In such a situation, unity can only be accomplished by winning, by pushing out the other, uh, 
by having your subjective opinion be the one that we choose. So the Corinthians are letting these non-essentials divide them. They're letting opinions divide them. So in our churches today, what non-essentials, what opinions do we let divide us? The list is almost endless. If we look at the North American church, music divides us. Carpets, just the color, not even the kind of carpet. The denominational affiliation. Non-essential fine points of theology. Are you a premillennialist or an amillennialist? Well, you need to get your own church. Personalities, programs, who's in charge of what? Do we wear masks? When do we wear masks? How long do we wear masks? Politics, are we a red church or a blue church? Can we get along? When we insist on these non-essentials, it ruptures the church. And there's a few different ways this can manifest itself. It can be an actual uh, split of a church. We've visited a bunch of churches last summer in a trip across America, and we heard story after story of these kind of church splits. And one was actually a, a split where there was actually one of the clergy members left and took a bunch of people. But it doesn't have to be that it can be just a bunch of people get fed up and just leave and take their marbles. But it also can be just individual withdrawal from the church about non-essential matters. I don't, not so sure this church is going in the right direction, so I'm going to go down the road. These are about non-essential things that I'm talking about. Now there is a time to separate. There are essential theological um, important matters that we need to be ready to divide on. And it, in fact, this uh, very uh, church uh, withdrew from uh, denominational affiliation over some essentials, but o only with tears after a long struggle to help people see the light and because of important theological matters. Uh, if you would like to look at a kind of a list or a document talking about what are the essential things that we need to be focused on when we're talking about the core things that make us who we are. There's a, a great place on the EPC uh, website, our denominations website. You can go to who we are about the EPC and beliefs. I think there you go. This is a probably too small to see, but anyway, you can look at those on the on the EPC's website. If you think about what are the essentials, we're talking about non-essentials, but what are the essentials? The the barn really, I think, is doing well in this area, in this era. But that's not always been the case. There has been differences of opinion that have caused uh, ruptures, rifts in this body in the past. And there's a blinking five, but I'm not sure if that means something. In any case, even if, they're, even if we are doing good in this area, the temptation is always there to make my subjective opinion something worthy of splitting about. We need to capture our minds, make it the mind of Christ and the judgment of Christ. Be vigilant in upholding the foundation of our unity, which is Jesus. We hold fast to the essentials and we bear with each other in the areas of non-essentials, especially when it comes to these subjective opinions. So in Christ, 
of a new kind of life that leads us to a new kind of unity based on our common foundation in Christ. What else do we see in this passage? We see that we have a new kind of common life. One of the ways that this, the living in old ways that we were talking about shows up in the Corinthian church is that they were letting cultural practices inform what they thought the church should be like. Let me read a passage to you from Andrew Nacelli. It's a, a little bit of a lengthy paragraph, so bear with me. He says, in this paragraph, it is helpful to understand the historical cultural context of the Greco-Roman world at this time. In many cultures today, people who excel at rhetoric, the art of public speaking, are not nearly as popular as movie stars, the most successful music artists or athletic superstars who play football or basketball. But in the Greco-Roman world of Paul's day, people who excelled at rhetoric and philosophy were popular. They were called sophists. Debating others and giving flashy speeches with both a science and an art, a polished skill that required sharp wit, deep knowledge, impeccable logic, stylish use of words, and fiery passion, whether the topic involved politics, law, or religion. The most successful rhetoricians had devoted followers, loyal students, who would pay handsomely in exchange for discipleship. The more convincing and moving was one's rhetoric, the more paying students one would have. And the way one expressed oneself was at least as important as uh, what one said. Style and substance both mattered immensely. Sophists generally traveled around and gained followers who would pay them. When a sophist entered a city, he would typically display his rhetorical abilities in order to gain social standing and attract students. So from that description of both the culture and how sophists would travel around, enter a city, and gain a following, you can see how the Corinthians may have gotten confused and thought, Paul is just one of these traveling philosophers, these sophists who's trying to gather a following. So the root of preferring one speaker over another was this cultural practice of gathering into these kind of competing schools of, uh, that followed these sophists, these philosophers. And it seems even that baptism was being used as a sign of entry into this community that were, were in, in effect, cheerleaders for these speakers. When we look at the church, we should not let cultural structures or ideas of what a community should be like affect the church. There is really nothing like the church in the world, really. It's a kind of a family, but it's a new kind of a family. It's a kind of a, a kingdom or a people, but it's a new kind of kingdom, a new kind of people that we've never seen before. And so it should be very different. Some of you <clears throat> who know us, we have tried to tell stories about what our life is like in Senegal. And you know that these are painful stories to hear because for a short two-minute story, we have to have five minutes of cultural setup just so we can, we can really tell this story. Some of you have suffered with us through some of those stories, and we appreciate that, your smiles and nods. But in the same way that life in Senegal is just so, so different that it's hard even to tell a story here in America, the church is totally different from the surrounding culture, not just in North America, but everywhere in the world. It's an inbreaking of the kingdom of God and a new kind of people, the people of God. And it should not look 
the same as anything. We should have a clear difference when people look at us in our worship of God, in our life together, in our service to the outsiders and to the people who are inside. And the Corinthians were in danger of basically breaking the church, making it not useful anymore, defeating its very purpose by taking this cultural kind of idea and imprinting it onto their church. Are there cultural ideas or cultural kinds of structures that we're taking and putting on churches today? Is there a way of thinking about our life together that's really external to the people of God? I thought about this for a while and there's some different possibilities, but the one that came most to mind as the greatest danger for North American Christians today is the club, the country club. Because the club is there recently, uh, rec sorry, I'm messing up my sentences here. The club is there to serve my comfort. The club is there to provide me with friends who look and sound like me and think like me. The club is there to keep others out. And if the club fails to meet my needs, I'm out of here. We recently attended, uh, uh, my wife and I recently attended a family wedding up in Cape Cod at a country club, and it was delightful. It was amazing. I would totally be a member of this club. It was so comfortable. It was so wonderful. But it was not a church. And a church should not be like that club. Where the club is there to serve my comfort, sometimes the church makes things uncomfortable. Yes, they, the church is there to provide for some of my needs, community, teaching, spiritual discipline, spiritual formation, but it's also a place to serve. The club is there to provide me with friends who look and sound like me, but the church is, is there to put me with people who are being formed, all of us, into the image of Christ. Not, not that we're all the same, not that we're the uniform, but we, we display the wild diversity of the creativity of God, but we are being trained to be different than what we were like. The same as each other in a way, yes, as we still show our diversity, but we're there to be formed, to be with people who maybe don't look and sound like us. The club is there to keep others out, but the church is there to welcome all of us. People who, it looks like we have it all together, and the least of these. Yes, we're all the least of these, no matter what kind of clothes we're wearing or what we're driving. If the club fails to meet my needs, I'm out of here. But the church is a place to be members and stick it out. If we have differences with people about non-essentials, to treat those things lightly. If we have a difficulty, interpersonal difficulty with somebody, to bear with them, to keep loving them. Not just take my marbles and go down the road. In Christ, we have a new kind of common life as the people of God. What else do we see in this passage uh, about the new way of life? We have a new kind of power. The error of the Corinthians in this passage was elevating one um, speaker uh, above another based on their perceived rhetorical skill. Their power was in their rhetoric. Their power was in that skill that they had. And Paul is correcting them when he says, 
that the power is not in the rhetorical skill, but somewhere else. This is verse 17. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Is Paul saying that we shouldn't be eloquent, that we shouldn't speak wisdom? No, not at all. But what he's talking about is that kind of eloquent wisdom that was popular back in this day. Where does he identify the power? He says in verse 18, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. If you take out the kind of parenthetical remark in the middle, what he's saying is, the word of the cross is the power of God. In our day, uh, rhetoric is alive and well. Michael Ware was here last week, and he talked about how uh, politicians use phrases that really mean nothing but get us excited. Are you pro-woman? Are you pro-choice? These things, uh, are you uh, pro-immigrant? Well, what, is, what do those things mean, really, when you say, I'm pro-woman? It's fuzzy. People of all kinds of persuasions could say, yes, I'm pro-woman. Rhetorical skill is still with us. It's a kind of manipulation that influences our thoughts and feelings towards the desired end of the speaker. It's still with us. There's other kinds of manipulation that are with us here in our modern era as well. Ways that people have of using their skill, their power, to manipulate our thoughts and feelings. Um, I recently became aware when my daughter told me that due to some news stories that were quashed by social media sites a couple of years ago, members of her generation uh, do not get their news anymore from mainstream sites. They get it from each other on TikTok. Manipulation backfires. When we try to manipulate people, it doesn't work. It works for a while. It works for a while. But in the end, people see, because of this manipulation, you don't have my best interests at heart. And so they reject the message. And we certainly see this in the area of religion. People who are maybe raised in a household that they have had some kind of manipulation into belief, maybe of the variety of, you believe this because I believe it, don't grow up and continue believing. Not that this is the only uh, reason that somebody would reject religion, but we see that manipulation in the end does not work. But abandoning manipulation, what Paul calls the, uh, this eloquent wisdom, doesn't mean that we we don't try to speak clearly and well. We still have a, uh, as Christians, when we communicate our message, we want to communicate well. Um, we want to prepare. I did prepare a sermon today. I'm, this is not, not speaking off the cuff here. So it's not that we don't communicate well. We don't try our best to communicate. It's not that we don't prepare, but we don't rely on our ability to manipulate people to get them to believe our message. We don't believe in our power. We believe in the power of the cross. We are actually empowered to speak with a kind of wisdom. Just look at the first verses of this, uh, this chapter that we're in today, chapter 1. Uh, we're starting today with 
verse 10, but look at verses 1 through 9 to see all the ways that we're empowered to speak by the Holy Spirit. Paul knew that serving in weakness is actually the best way to access the power of God. Our own weakness enables God's power to flow through us. And so when we do that, God gets the glory, not us. N.T. Wright says this when commenting on this passage. When Paul came into a pagan city that prided itself on its intellectual and cultural life and stood up to speak about Jesus of Nazareth, who had been crucified by the Romans, but raised from the dead by God, and who was now the Lord of the world, summoning people to faithful obedience, he knew what people think. He knew what people would think. This was and is the craziest message anybody could imagine. This wasn't a smart new philosophy. It was madness. It wasn't an appeal to high culture. It was news of an executed criminal from a despised race. The gospel is not good advice for a living. It's not how to manage your emotions or get your kids to like you. It's the word of the cross. A crazy message. But in it, we find the power of God. God works through the proclamation of his word by the Spirit to change hearts despite this apparently weak message. Not that he works the same way every time and not that he works in the same schedule every time in every case, but he does work through that message. So there are some alternatives to putting our confidence in God's power. One of them is not to share at all. We don't put our confidence in God's power. We see that we're weak, and so we say, no, I'm not going to share. I'm not going to speak. I'm not going to verbally uh, testify to what God's done in my life. That's one of the options. Sometimes we do share, but in our own power, not in God's power, and not in an 80s televangelist kind of way, but for good reasons. We want good outcomes, but sometimes we go about it the wrong way. Um, I do volunteer with the youth group here, and um, every week when I go in to youth group, I have to speak to my heart and get it to stop saying something to me. What it says to me every week when I go in is, go in there and be cool enough that those kids will like you so that you can convince them that Jesus is also cool, so they'll like him. That is not the way this happens. Those kids, you, some of you are here, I know that you don't think I'm cool. And I know that I will never be cool. But if I can be in that weakness, a channel for God's power to flow, oh. If lightning can strike, then God can work. Now, what's the problem with me going in thinking, I'm going to be cool enough for these kids to like me? As I said, that's not going to happen. But if I were somehow to wear the right hoodie and the right you know, Air Jordans or whatever, and I were to convince some of these kids that I was cool enough, that they should like Jesus, that would be my abilities my glory, not God's. That would be my results, not God's. And it would be my platform, 
not God's. This kind of thinking, I have to be cool enough, get people, whatever, that kind of thinking is what has given rise to, in many churches, not the barn, but in many churches, an emphasis on numbers of people in the door rather than the quality of our common life. And it's hard to quantify discipleship. It is easy to quantify numbers of people coming through the door. And so this is one of the things we want to do is believe that God has the power to work through us in our weakness. Now, what are the implications of this? Now, as ministers of the gospel, and you are all ministers of the gospel empowered for verbal witness to what Jesus has done in your life. As ministers, we can minister the word and power because we are enabled, empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Corinthian version of rhetorical power was to receive, to receive money, to receive acclaim, to receive praise. In Christ, we have power not for, not for our own glory, but for service. We're empowered to serve, not for gain. You are empowered by the Holy Spirit to tell about Jesus to your friends, to your neighbors, to your family members. What does that look like? I came across a, a verse recently that really has nothing to do with our verse for our, for our, job, our passage from today, but I just thought this is a great way of expressing what we're talking about. Acts 23:11. Don't turn there. It's just a phrase I want to share with you. Uh, Jesus is appearing to Paul, and he says, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Now, the word is witness, but the way the ESV has rendered that is so clear and concise. I just really loved it. Testify to the facts. Uh, you are not putting together some kind of philosophical proof to prove Jesus is Lord. You're testifying to the facts. What did Jesus do? What's in the Bible? And what has he done in your life? What did you see? What did you hear? What did you feel? What is this Jesus all about? Will this message sound weak and foolish coming out of your mouth? Will you feel unprepared, scared, unable, and weak? I certainly hope so. Because you will be experiencing the power of God. Preach it all the same. Speak it all the same. If you're feeling weak when it comes time to talk about Jesus, say a prayer of thanks because that's exactly where you want to be. Our new life in Christ is not a small adjustment. It is not um, a set of uh, five uh, quick and easy tips to make your life like you want it to be. It is a total transformation. It is a new kind of humanity, not just as individuals, as new kind of people, but as a community, a new kind of kingdom, a new kind of people. In this new life, we have a new source of unity, which is our common foundation in Christ, a new kind of common life as the people of God, and a new power, not for receiving, but for service. May we all grow more in this new life. Let me pray for us. 
Lord, thank you for your word and how it instructs us, how each time we go back to it and sit with it, take some time with it, it reveals new riches to us. We pray, Lord, that as we have seen something of your heart for us this morning, we would live it out this week, Lord. We praise you. Thank you for your son and for your work in our lives, Lord. Amen.